Well, as we're standing, let's read together in unison our uh, passage for today, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Yeah, Danny, you look at the verse and read it with us. Are you ready? Here we go. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Please. The animated movie Wall-E uh, is a touching story about uh, uh, a curious little robot who is tasked with cleaning up the earth after uh, humans have pretty much trashed it. Uh, it's the same earth that, that we know today, but uh, humans had at some point uh, evacuated the earth decades before and were sent to live in a space station until robots could go to the earth and clean everything up and, and make the earth inhabitable once again. And uh, Wally is this uh, robot who is hardworking. He's a little mischievous in his curiosity, um, and he, he lives a pretty lonely existence. And that is until he meets uh, this, uh, this friendly girl robot named Eve. And he quickly becomes smitten with her and pursues her to the point of making an unplanned journey uh, to the space station called Axios uh, that the humans live on. And instead of anxiously awaiting for the news uh, that they can return back to Earth and, and go on as life was meant to be, uh, these humans on this spaceship are living somewhat of a utopian uh, existence. They don't have any cares in the world. They're waited on hand and foot uh, by robots attending to their, their every women desire. They, they live constantly sitting in recliner chairs and have a virtual screen in front of their face about six inches from their nose or so. And they live con continually sucking on a straw from big gulps while wearing identical onesies in this giant room of entertainment. And as a result of their, their pampering, they have really become self-indulgent. They've become bored couch potatoes who resemble big babies with their, uh, you know, soft faces, their rounded torsos, and their uh, stubby and atrophied limbs. And the sad reality is, is that the movie is meant to show the absurdity of such an existence. There are some of us that might view such an existence as having it all, that it's endless entertainment. You never have to do anything. You're weighted on hand and foot. There's constant rest and relaxation. You don't have to even lift a finger to have every single need of yours met. It is met by these, these robot butlers and, and maids and cooks and, and valets and and best of all, you don't have to work anymore. You don't have a job. You don't have employment. And that's the greatest thing that these people can imagine. 
And while that might sound appealing, the creators of WALL-E inserted this little detail here uh, to show that such an existence is not the goal, but rather it is, it is sad, it is depressing, it's repulsive, and it's somewhat dehumanizing. The creators tapped into something that God's people have known ever since the dawn of creation, that we are people who are not created to be do-nothing consumers. We were created to be producers who contribute to the flourishing of human society and culture. In essence, we were created with work in mind. And work is not something that was... Uh, a post-Eden afterthought on the part of God. Even before the fall uh, of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, God gave Adam the task to go into the garden and work it and keep it. And it was only after the advent of sin that work became a burden and, and a chore. And so as we continue on our journey this week to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to become people that God wants us to be. And uh, part of becoming who we are in Christ is redeeming our sense of struggle when it comes to work. And so Paul uh, takes the gospel to an area that has affected, is affecting, and will affect a lot of us in the room today, the workplace. We're going to see what God the Father has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ and how it relates to one of the, one of the most important details of our lives. How does the gospel fit in when we're sitting behind a, a desk looking at a spreadsheet all day? How does the gospel fit in when we need to snake out that clogged drain uh, again? How does the gospel impact how you teach and interact with children and teens? How does the gospel change how we go through uh, and, and work on the assembly line? This is what Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 addresses. But if we want to understand how it addresses that, there's one thing in particular that we need to sort of uh, get out of the way, and that's our first point, is that we need to tackle this issue of slavery in the New Testament. We need to tackle this issue of slavery in the New Testament. It's almost impossible to understand this text in its original context and then put it onto our contemporary context uh, without at least tackling the issue of slavery in its proper light. It's obvious here that Paul addresses slaves and masters. In your translation, it may say bondservant. It means the same exact thing. Um, it means being uh, a slave, being owned by someone. But if we compare our modern understanding of slavery, which is largely influenced by uh, the American and British uh, forms of slavery in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, um, we won't understand um, this passage. From a historical standpoint, slavery has existed since essentially forever, since the fall. It has existed in many forms and it's varied in its, in its brutality. So though we have to, at the end of the day, condemn slavery in all of its forms because it reduces humans to property, we cannot uh, compare the different ways that it has been employed. So for example, slavery today exists, and it's estimated that about 50 million people living in the world right now are living as slaves. The majority of the victims of slavery are victims of human trafficking. 
which encompasses anything from forced labor to uh, child marriage to sex trafficking, of which, of all of the data of uh, human trafficking, um, the sexual exploitation makes up 50% of that, uh, the slavery um, market, if you want to say it at that. 46% of modern slaves are women, 20% are men, and roughly one-third, just above a third, are children. And yes, slavery exists. It has existed. It probably always will until Christ comes. It's awful. No human being should be owned by another human being for their, their sick and twisted um, inhumane purposes. But just as we cannot compare our understanding of slavery in America to how slavery currently is existing in our world, so we can't compare our concept of slavery to Paul's. So what did slavery look like in the Roman Empire? Well, for one, the scope of it was much more vast. Roughly a third of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. And if you want to break down those demographics, you'd see that race had absolutely no bearing on who were slaves. Yes, some were bought and sold like meat at a market, but there was a, uh, a, a good many slaves who voluntarily went into bondage. It was to help them economically. If they weren't able to, uh, to survive on their own, they would sell themselves into slavery. Uh, it would be one way that they could ensure that their needs would be met. Many, fun many slaves actually functioned as members within the family. Uh, education was encouraged. S some slaves were doctors. Some were lawyers. Some had very high positions uh, in the society. Um, many of, well, the majority of slaves expected that they were going to have emancipation by the age of 30. So if they could get through those years, they, know, they had a good realistic uh, expectation of freedom. Now, as rosy as that sounds, it doesn't mean that it was good. Again, these are people that were owned by other human beings. They were considered property. They had no legal existence while they were slaves. Some masters were very harsh. Some, especially the women, were compelled sexually. So then whatever place they had in the family or position in society, they were still slaves. So when we approach our text, we have to do so gently. We can't just say that Greco-Roman slavery is analogous to our uh, American employment system. Nor can we just dismiss this text as if it's not relevant or beneficial to us. So what do we do? I think that we recognize that there isn't a one-to-one -one equivalent here. And uh, we take the principles of what Paul is saying and we apply the principles to what we uh, go through. And the closest thing that we have in our system is that of the roles of employee and employer. It's not perfect, but we're going to roll with it. Um, so here's the first thing that we should glean from this passage. That is, first, employees, do your job as if Jesus was your boss. Do your job as if Jesus was your boss. That's point number, number two today. My first year of teaching in the public school was really interesting. It was, um, it was, very, it was hard. It was very stressful. Um, Ask any teacher, though, uh, what the most difficult year of teaching was, I guarantee uh, 
vast majority of them would say that their first year or two was the most difficult in their, uh, in their career. However, I, I say that my first year of teaching was interesting, not because of the difficulty. That, that's what every, every teacher goes through. But um, because I quickly learned how bitter the divide between the staff and administration was in the particular district that I was, that I was in. Um, I don't think it's this way in most districts, but wow, where I was, the teachers did not like administration at all. There was always uh, uh, bickering and talking uh, about them, it, it, and it wasn't just during the negotiation season. It was, it was constant. There were always conversations about uh, what principal so-and-so said or what, what uh, superintendent what's-his-face and his new policy, and what is he thinking with that? And, or there was even just a little bit of murmuring at that time about striking. Uh, I don't remember about what, but I just heard the murmurs. I had no idea what I got myself into. I had no clue about the context or the history behind what in the world was going on at this uh, school, but I do remember thinking two things. Number one, they didn't tell me any of this stuff back in college. How, was my, how am I supposed to figure this out when I was a brand new teacher and this is what I'm going to? And the second thing that I, that I realized is that this is not how it should be. To be fair, yes, there were a couple of administrators that were a bit unreasonable and overbearing, and yeah. Uh, it was glaringly obvious to me that most teachers didn't enjoy working for them um, and were anxiously waiting for them to move on to a new administrative position, which they did. And um, a few of them, however, were just disrespectful behind their backs and complained a lot. I have no doubt that they loved their job, not because of who they worked for, but because they loved the kids that they taught. At other jobs I've had, I've witnessed the, uh, the boss is coming, look busy syndrome. And you know what that all is. You know that you got lazy workers going on and all of a sudden the boss or the owner, you can see him coming up in the parking lot. Oh, Mr. Such and Such is coming, look busy. So everybody just starts shuffling around doing things that aren't even things just to make it look like they are uh, being busy. And I'm sure if I went around the room, I could go to every single one of us that have ever uh, held a job, and we could have story after story about uh, employers and, and uh, how employees-employee relationship wasn't the best. But when Paul starts telling us in verse 5, uh, we should listen to what he says. He says that if we are in union with Jesus Christ, then we are obligated to the best of our ability, and to work heartily for those that employ us. He writes this. He says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Let's, let's replace that language just a bit. Workers, follow through on your duties right away, all the way, and with a happy heart, just as if Christ asked you to do the same thing. The word for obey in this verse literally 
means like to hear or to listen. And the image that it gives is of someone knocking at the door and going to answer that call uh, at the door. And we aren't to be like Quasimodo of just, yes, master, doing everything as if we are uh, uh, servants of, uh, of a slave master and doing their every whim, but it does mean that we are to have a heart attitude towards our employers as if we would Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, just as he did a few verses ago, Paul gives us both a negative imperative as well as a couple of positive ones. Let's back up in verse 5 to see the negative first. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. So that, that first word that Paul uses is, is so creative. He says, don't work in such a way that you are doing eye service. Don't be like a servant to their eyes to make their eyes become joyful. Don't be a look busy, the boss is coming kind of people. The, the, the phrase people pleasers here is good too. It can be rendered as one who does something just so that others would like them. So it might not be an issue of the heart. Their heart may be far away from it. But uh, Paul is saying here that that's not what you do. Your heart should be as if it is Christ. It's not smiling at your boss and saying sure to a task and then when they turn around saying to yourself or your coworker, can you believe that jerk made me do that thing one more time? Instead, he moves to the two positives. Look in verse 6. But as bondservants of Christ... We aren't to be hypocrites in how we go about things, but we're told to work as servants of Christ. Why? Because back in chapter 1, uh, we were told of how God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You go further in chapter 1, it talks about how, how we were uh, adopted as sons of God. And in chapter 2, he detailed the depth of our spiritual bondage prior to Christ was so deep that we in, were in fact spiritually dead. But he goes on in chapter 2 to tell us that in Christ Jesus, God revived our hearts by his grace to come alive again in Christ. And so now that we are united uh, to Christ by faith, we are in a new community called the church, which is the expression of Christ's body today. It's, a, it's, it's very diverse in its makeup, but it's unified in its, in its purpose and in its doctrine. And, uh, and so because we are now in this new community, because we have been made new in Christ, we are not to be people pleasers. We're not to do things as way of eye service. Why? Because that way of life and that way of working is who we used to be. But that's not who we are anymore. We are made new in Christ. Once we were slaves to sin, now we're slaves to Christ. So when we interact with our employers, our submission to them is to emulate our submission to Christ. And two propositions fall under this slavery to Christ. Verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. You can't do God's will from the heart if you are just trying to keep up appearances. 
If you are just trying to look the part, you cannot be doing God's will. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. In other words, Paul recognizes that some of us may work for people who really are not kind and who are not uh, gracious. Some of us may work for people who are incompetent or who are on a power trip or who are generally bad leaders. And Paul is saying it doesn't matter. As long as you have that job, you are to do it with goodwill as to the Lord. It doesn't matter who you're working for because ultimately Paul is telling us that God is your boss. Just as God is, the, as Jesus is the ultimate senior pastor of this church, so God is our boss at work. It is his praise and honor that we seek. It is his glory that we want to highlight, not that guy who sits in the back room who's always in a bad mood and barks a bunch of orders all day. And if you aren't convinced yet, verse 8 is a powerful reason to work hard at changing our hearts. It says, do this knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So it really doesn't matter if someone is a slave or if they're free, uh, employed or retired. God rewards the faithful. And though we might not have a return on our investment today or tomorrow, there's coming a day uh, in which Christ is going to give us our Christmas bonus by saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And we are going to be able to say, putting up with all of that stuff was totally worth it. So what needs to change in your attitude at work? God has called all of us to be productive workers. And from my experience, um, everyone has a difficult job. My job is stressful. Your job is stressful. All in different ways. We all have hard jobs. But the question is, who are you truly working for? And does it show when you go about your daily duties? And third and finally, this goes to the employers. Lead like Jesus would lead. Lead like Jesus would lead. If you have anyone under you, you should lead like Christ. In verse 9, Paul addresses the employers, or the masters in this context. Uh, it's, it's much shorter than he commands the workers, but there's a reason for that when he says, Masters, do the same to them. Well, what does that mean? I mean, isn't there a completely relation, a different relational context um, or dynamic in the roles of employer and employee? How can Paul say that? Is he, is he saying that employers are to obey their employees with a sincere heart as they would, would Christ? I, it doesn't seem that way. Rather, he seems to be saying that masters or employers and bosses are to approach their position with a redemptive heart and a redemptive mindset. Just as employees are to think about relating to their bosses in a Christological and a Christ-centered approach, so the employers 
are to do the same. So what this means is that employers are to take care of their employees. Think about the relationship. Uh, Christmas was just a couple months ago. Think about the relationship between Ebenezer Scrooge and, uh, and Bob Cratchit. Would you say that that was a Christian way of having employee, uh, employees under you before he has his dream? No. Bob Cratchit isn't even able to support his family. And yet, Ebenezer Scrooge, his bank account and his assets just seem to keep going higher and higher. To be a Christian boss is to pay your employees fairly according to the work. It means making sure that you're committed to their success because their success is vital to yours. It's encouraging them. It's, it's training them to be better than they currently are. And if that means training them up so that they rise in the ranks and you stay where you are, or if they move on to a different company with a better position and better pay, so be it. That's a joy to unleash people like that. And here, uh, notice in verse 9, Paul writes, and stop your threatening Excuse me. You can imagine that in any context, a slave master can be harsh. Well, many of us, again, can cite experiences with a, with a boss that's not much different than an Egyptian taskmaster. Don't be that boss. Now, when I think about an example of what a truly Christian company would look like, it's not Hobby Lobby, and it's not Chick-fil-A. As much as I love Chick-fil-A food, I've worked for Chick-fil-A, and it was not the most Christian experience that I've had. But, surprisingly, it's the Guinness Company. Yeah, like the beer company. Did you know that Guinness is a Christian company? Many of you didn't know that. Well, um... Uh, it was founded on the idea of taking care of their employees and providing beer to the glory of God. Now, I know that's repulsive to some of you. But what I'm about to say, you are not going to be, you are not going to be able to argue that they don't take care of their employees the way that Jesus would want them to. In his book, The Search for God and Guinness, a biography of the beer that changed the world, by the way, is a fascinating read. This is what the author Stephen Mansfield writes. From the beginning of their corporate and family history, the Guinnesses had embraced their obligation to the needy of the world. This began at home with their own employees. Accordingly, the Guinness Brewery routinely paid wages that were 10 to 20% higher than average. They had a reputation as the best place to work in Ireland and, as important uh, to many employers, allowed workers two pints a day of their stout. Well, that's beside the fact. Moreover, the benefits of the company gave its employees surpassed that envisioned by modern companies like Google and Microsoft. Consider the snapshot uh, by a uh, Guinness Company report back in 1928, um, which uh, is not like the highlight of times in the world to be able to treat your, your employees well. Uh, Guinness, uh, working at, works at, the people that worked at the brewery in Dublin, enjoyed the attention of two fully qualified doctors who staffed an on-site clinic where any employee 
uh, wife or child could receive treatment. These privileges extended to widows and pensioners as well. The doctors were available night or day, made house calls, would consult specialists on their patient's behalf if necessary. There was also two dentists on staff uh, for their employees. There were two pharmacists, two nurses, two, uh, there was a lady visitor who assured healthy conditions in the workers' homes, and a masseuse. They also provided hospital beds, both at the Guinness plant and at a sanatoria in the country intended for patients who are recovering from tuberculosis. That was only the beginning. Retirees received pensions at the pleasure of the board without ever having to make one contribution to their pension. Can you imagine that today? Um, this benefit extended to the widows as well. If an employee or an employee's family member died, the company paid the majority, if not all, of the funeral expenses. To improve the lives of their employees, the company provided a savings bank on site and contributed to a fund from which the workers could borrow to purchase houses. To make sure that life in these homes was all it could be, the company sponsored competitions to uh, encourage domestic skills with cash awards for sewing, cooking, decorating, and gardening, and hat making. Concerts and lectures were provided for the wives of the workers in the belief that the moral and intellectual level of the home would rise only to that of the mother or the wife who lived there. Wow. The educational benefits were also more generous than modern corporations. Guinness paid for all of its employees between the ages of 14, again, 1928, of 14 and 30 to attend technical schools in Dublin and funded more advanced education for those who were qualified. There was a lending library at the plant. There was a music musical society. There were workmen's rooms. These are lounges that the hardworking men, when they wanted a break, could go to these, lounge, these lounges and sit relax, read a book, or just daydream to think about something other than work. And this is their employer providing this for them. There were also classes in wood carving and cage making, fret work, sketching, photography, cabinet making, handwriting, music, singing, dancing. The generosity of the Guinness Company was unlimited, he writes. Every year, no, this is what got me, every year, Every employee was paid to take his family into the country for an excursion day. So they're paying their uh, employees to go take a vacation. Train fare was paid for. Uh, the, there was money for food and entertainment provided. Single men were allowed to take dates. And, and again, the company paid the bill. On the Jubilee of Queen Victoria, Guinness paid every employee a week's extra salary. Wow. You try finding a business anywhere today that still gives even just a pension to their employees. It doesn't happen anymore. So regardless of what you think about the product, we cannot argue that the Guinness Company did not take seriously Paul's words here in Ephesians 6, 9. This is a perfect example of how employers invest in their workforce, not for profit, but simply because God called them to take care of those who are working for them. What if, what if every Christian boss or Christian company sought to lead by the example of Christ? 
How many uh, of billionaire Christian CEOs could help out their employees and to be happy and be thankful that God has put them into such a situation and God has blessed them through their employment? You'd be hard-pressed again to find any pensions. If you're a boss or you're an owner, what needs to change? How do you relate to those under you? What sacrifices might you need to make in order for your workers to see Christ in you or in your company? Paul ends this passage by making sure that employers know that when it comes to God, he is both master of the employer and of the employee. He says, there is no, impart- there is no partiality with him. So if you think that you're more important if you think that because you're higher on the totem pole as far as the company goes, if you are less expendable and have a right to be a jerk to those under you, you don't know the gospel. You don't know Jesus. We have to see why Christ came to reconcile us all to the new community of Christ and that the gospel affects us as children, as, as, uh, as spouses, as workers, as, uh, as, as parents. There isn't any aspect or, or, or place in our lives that the gospel does not touch. So employer, lead like Christ would lead. Friends, there's no area that is exempt from this. And one of them that affects us all in some way is our work life. Work is not a result of the fall. It is designed by God for our good. It is one way in which God wants us to become who we are in Christ. And as we get closer to the end of this series here in the next couple weeks, we're going to cap that off. But when we become who we are in Christ, we're to show his glory to a world that desperately needs him. So regardless of your status employee, employer, retired, whatever it is, will you honor God today in every good endeavor? Let's pray.